0: Mortasab We're into the month of July and so um, we have a new page on the calendar and this month's Dhammapada verse uh, 282 I um, Punya and I were talking about it last night or this morning um, and the verse is true contemplation leads to wisdom without contemplation wisdom wanes recognize how wisdom is cultivated and how it is destroyed and walk the way of increase. As usual with these verses, I, uh, when I go back and revise them, I, I look again at other translators to check to see where I have deviated from the way other translators represent these verses and also look at the story again, remind myself of the story behind the verse and um, it's always, it always surprises me how distinctly different expert translators uh, present these teachings. And as you probably know, um, when I first prepared this uh, Dhamma Part of a Contemplation book, I consulted uh, quite a large range of different versions, and uh, all of them in their own right, very highly regarded. Uh, experts in Pali and, and, and translation into English. And, and on no single verse, not one single verse in the whole Dhammapada did they all agree, not at all. And, and then also uh, looking back at the story behind uh, the verse, you get a, a feel for what the tradition has to say about this verse. Um, it's It's probably pretty well agreed, that the, uh, the, the, most of these stories um, uh, came into the present form. We have them now sometime after the Buddha was around, but still they have encoded in them, if you like, the spirit of the verse, and I think it's also always worth uh, looking at them to get a, get a feeling for what the Buddha was pointing to. Mm-hmm. You can literally translate the Pali. You may be the world's number one expert on Pali, and be able to translate absolutely exactly word for word uh, and at any university around the world score top grades uh, in your translation of the Dhammapada. But does that mean that you understand what the Buddha was talking about? No, not necessarily. Um, Probably most of us have the experience of having come across people who are experts, so-called experts in a particular field and But uh, when you actually meet them as people, do they really know their subject? And this particular verse of Dhammapada addresses this very directly. Uh, The the Buddha gave this teaching, uh, verse 282, that true contemplation leads to wisdom. Um, Actually, uh, most most translators, it seems, translate this as, as meditation leads to wisdom. But when you look at the actual verse and you look at the story behind it it's more than just the the thing that many of us think meditation is uh, like the idea of a technique that you do Um, and the story behind it uh, is about uh, a monk a senior monk quite a senior monk uh, Potila Potila, who he was a highly acclaimed expert on the Uh, Tripitaka. well certainly on the Suttas anyway and um Knew all the knew all about them. Lectured regularly, and and he had, apparently he had five hundred monks that he was regularly teaching about the the uh, the, the Buddha's discourses, and and uh, very highly regarded. But uh, the Buddha knew that actually he didn't know what he was talking about, not really. Uh, to the extent, whenever this this monk came to see the Buddha, the Buddha referred to him as this as this use, useless potila, this useless fellow potila, he called him useless which, uh, to a monk, you know, it's not what you want to be referred to. I know if I went to see Ajahn Chah and he said, oh, that's useless menendo, I mean, I would notice. Um, and fortunately, uh, Venerable Potila uh, recognised that the Buddha was trying to point something out to him, wasn't just being unpleasant. And so he got went away and thought about it, and thought, oh, actually, yeah, the Buddha's got a point. You know, I am really useless because I only know about the Dhamma. I don't know the Dhamma. I don't really know this directly. No unshakable insight has arisen and this is the point of the buddha's teaching that, and it's important we understand this that the buddha wasn't just offering another opinion about things he was talking about a way of training our heart and mind and our body and our speech as we talked about recently in a way that there's a transformation of consciousness not just a slight alteration of consciousness. You can alter consciousness very easily. You just have a cup of coffee, and you know, not to mention various other chemicals that you can take which can produce interesting experiences on the level of consciousness. It's not difficult to alter consciousness, but when the drug wears off, you we just go back to where you were. So that's not a transformation of consciousness. That's an alteration of consciousness. And the Buddha wasn't just talking about a, a temporary alteration of consciousness. He was talking about a, a transformation of consciousness so that not just mundane or lokia wisdom arises, but locutura or super mundane or irreversible insight arises in consciousness so that there's no way it'll go back again. And this is this is this is very important. This is not just speculation the Buddha was talking about, but that it's like it's like when you bake bread, you know, once it's baked, you can never have flour again. You can't get flour from bread. You know, something's happened, a process has happened or a better example is carbon dust turning into diamonds. It goes through a serious process of transformation. A huge amount of heat, a huge amount of pressure. And when ingredients are there, then this carbon dust transforms into diamonds, which is much more useful than a, a bucket load of carbon dust. And likewise, the transformed consciousness, the awakened consciousness, is much more useful than the everyday common and garden variety thing we've got to work with. And so this is what the Buddha was pointing to, and Venerable Potila realized that he didn't know actually this. And so he decided, well, i better go away and do something about it. So he went, he left his monastery and his job, and didn't tell anybody, he just went off to another monastery. And there uh, was only 30 monks instead of the 500 he was used to living with. And, and he asked the senior monk very humbly, you know, could I be your disciple and please would you teach me uh, how to realize uh, all this stuff I'm talking about. And the senior monk, he said, well, actually, I think it'd better you go to the next one down the line and, and you go and see if he'll teach you. And, and the next one down the line said, well, you go and see him. And Until Benoit Potala went right down the line and at the very bottom of the line there was a seven-year-old novice who happened to be an arahant. And on the basis that this elder agreed to follow the instructions of the, the novice monk, Uh, He took him on as a disciple and he gave him instructions, clear instructions on how to contemplate the body, how to stay with mindfulness of the body and investigate the body. Now when the Buddha saw this, he thought, oh, at last, this monk is doing what he's supposed to be doing and offered him some encouragement and offered him this teaching, actually, that uh, true contemplation leads to wisdom. And so with, with actual uh, the hearing of this teaching from the Buddha, uh, the Venerable Potala also uh, arrived at unshakable insight, irreversible understanding of the path and the fruit. So the point, and I think for me what's uh, really, really poignant about this, this verse is the encouragement again from the Buddha to not just settle for the form of the teachings. Whether it's a form of meditation and and be able to sit there and concentrate on the sensation of your breath or or count your breaths. You know, people can pick up meditation techniques and hammer away at them for years and maybe they get from time to time they get some good feeling going. But does it really take them to insight, to understanding, to confidence, to coming to see how wisdom is increased and how wisdom wanes? Does it give them that perspective to see how we learn to really work with our stuff? So we've got a practice that we can use in all situations to really work with what's going on in a skillful way that produces understanding which gives us natural confidence. Not just the borrowed confidence from living with a teacher who happens to know a great deal and be very uh, wonderful and radiant and so on and then you can just go repeating the words of your teacher. You, know, there's, you can get sort of borrowed, borrowed radiance, it's called, from your great teacher. Or you maybe, again, know all about the scriptures, all about the Tipitaka, all about the Abhidhamma, and all about the Sutta Pitaka. And you can go and quote, the Buddha said this, and the Buddha said that. And you can basically find something in the scriptures to justify most reasonable opinions uh, on Dhamma and get a certain confidence from that. But then that kind of confidence when somebody comes along and contradicts us, how does it feel? Mm. Somebody tells you your opinion about the Abhidhamma is complete rubbish and gives you another profoundly intelligent interpretation of the Abhidhamma. And can you listen to it? And say, oh that's interesting. I never thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. Or your, your your perspective on meditation. Yeah. Maybe you're a real Vipassana freak who has a a Vipassana meditation technique that you're absolutely convinced is the way and you've got a lot of good feeling from it, got a lot of understanding and confidence from it. But then somebody else comes along and says, Vipassana, that's not even the beginning of Vipassana, that's a load of rubbish, you know, you've got to do this. And say, well, how does that feel? Can we practice with that? Well, if we're really practicing, if we're really practicing Dhamma, then when we are contradicted in our opinion on practice, we're in a position within ourselves where we can hear that, where we can listen to that. doesn't mean to say we don't have a reaction. I don't think I know anybody who doesn't have a reaction, but it's how we have the reaction. Do we have the space? Do we have the mindfulness? Do we have the perspective on practice which sees everything to be included in spiritual life? Or is our idea of meditation or the spiritual life just doing this technique or just doing this form? So what I read in this verse is the Buddha is saying it's not just about getting a technique or a form that gives you confidence. But actually learning how to really engage all of your heart and mind, all of your experience, body, speech and mind and to include it in spiritual life. The last Dhammapada verse for last month, which I commented on, which was just a couple of weeks ago, was the verse about bailing the water out of your boat and, and uh, sailing on towards liberation. And I commented on that occasion how the encouragement to practice on all levels of body, speech and mind and to find ways of, of including all of these things in our practice. And I was reflecting recently how Ajahn Chah, uh, wonderful, radiant being that he was, uh, he died relatively young, and he started getting sick, seriously sick, when he was only 60. And he commented at the time that it was a great pity that he hadn't looked after his health a bit better. Now, he'd also said on other occasions that we're willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of our health. You know, we'll do anything to look after ourselves. But, he said, you've got to be willing to sacrifice even your health for realization of Dhamma, but he, he he counted that in a wise way. I say it's not just a matter of okay, you don't pay attention to your health. You know, you've got to look after, you've got to be mindful of your health, and so there's no doubt about it. He knew how to unplug. He knew how to really look after his mind. He really knew how to actually go inwards and and go into very very quiet, very very clear, pristine awareness and come out totally refreshed. You know, you've all probably heard the stories of how he would be up on the Dhamma seat, giving dumber talks and until midnight or whatever, and then go off and do a little walking meditation, and, and then maybe go and sit in meditation for an hour or two, and then come back and start talking again, and talk again until arms round at four o'clock in the morning. But despite his attainments on that level... Uh, because he didn't have the resources to look after his body. It wasn't that he was negligent. It's just that he came from a generation of monks where the monks who practiced meditation were treated as like witch doctors. They weren't generally held in very high regard. People were very frightened of meditation monks. In those days, they upheld the scholarly monks, the monks who really knew how to quote from the scriptures. And so he didn't get a lot of support and didn't get much medicine. had malaria fever, Intense Muley for two years, and his medicine was urine. He used to just go off and drink urine, that was his medicine, which the Buddha recommended. But actually, uh, there are a place for other medicines as well, which had Ajahn Chah been given them, who knows, there might have been an opportunity for him to live healthy and a bit longer. So there is an encouragement that we need to be not just applying a meditation technique, but also to have discernment, circumspection to be able to consider the predicament. When the Buddha was talking to his son, Rahula, and he asked Rahula the question of, of, what is the point of a mirror, Rahula? And Rahula replied, well, a mirror is for seeing your face in. That's how you see your face in a mirror. And then the Buddha said, well, son, he said, "Well, well, Rahula, so I say that wise reflection, wise contemplation, True contemplation is for seeing the mind. He didn't say playing, we pass our meditation technique, or, or concentrating on a meditation object is for seeing the mind. He said wise contemplation or wise reflection is for seeing the mind. So we need to use meditation techniques, just the same as we, uh, we need to uh, learn from our teachers uh, about uh, anything you can learn about. Cooking. You, know, you go and you learn from your parents about cooking. Yeah. Or you learn from, even from a book if you need to. If your parents didn't teach you about cooking when you are a child, you can learn from books or you can go on television. And there's all sorts of cooks on television these days. And so you can learn the theory, uh, what in uh, traditional Theravadan Buddhism is called the, the level of pariyatti knowing about but then we've got to move on to the the next level which is pati pati or or learning how to apply ourselves to the training and then as we apply ourselves to whatever it is the cooking or the meditation then we've got to get a little creative not too creative we get too creative too quick and we leave behind the wisdom of the tradition the wisdom of the elders well that's a great pity we can get carried away with our uh, excessive enthusiasm, that's not it. So again, a little modesty uh, and patience. And so if we le- but we'd learn about, and then we apply ourselves into actually uh, doing what's being encouraged until the third stage of practice that so Buddha talked about was uh, pati vedi. So pariyati, pati pati, pati vedi, the learning about, applying ourselves, and then realisation uh, is the point. And to really uh, appreciate this encouragement, the Buddha said, over and over again to arrive at realisation, that's that's what this is about. We're not just spending our life developing clever ideas so we can have better arguments with people. For me it was a a big turning point when I I first uh, came across what the Buddha talked about, stream entry that you can reach a point which is irreversible. I was, as a youngster, I was very afraid that I um, would know, reading about what happened in Germany in World War II, and, and all these Germans went along with the Nazis. Now, I'm sure there was a few who didn't go along with the Nazis, but there was a lot that did, and they compromised their own integrity by going along with the Nazis, and they ended up doing horrendous things that they spent the rest of their life regretting. And I used to think, my goodness, what would I do if I was in that situation? And I was terrified, because I used to get dragged along to these Billy Graham crusades. You've heard of Billy Graham, this Bible basher who would hold these big crusades in, in this country as well, and certainly in New Zealand we would have them, and I'd get dragged along, and all my, my family were of the same orientation, and you know, Baptists, fundamentalists on one side, and Presbyterians on the other side, and... And really serious about being saved and and evangelizing about the fact and we'd go along and they they whip up the rhetoric and the the voice, the tone, the tenor of the whole thing and singing these songs, the emotional songs, and then they they give the calling and you you're supposed to come forward and you stand there and you Oh well these Christian youth camps I used to go to, you're supposed to hold these torches that'd been dipped in methylated spirits and and say you're saved and and, you I used to go along with it, lie through the teeth. I wasn't saved. You know, I knew I wasn't saved. I was a complete little rat bag. Really. I definitely wasn't saved, but I used to say I was. And in other words, I got intimidated to being deeply dishonest and compromising myself. And then I think about, well, Nazi Germany, what would have I done? And it really scared me, until I came across the Buddha's teaching on Sotapanna or stream entry. where you, reach a, you can, if you practice right, reach a point which is irreversible. You can't break the five precepts. You're just not capable of doing it. In other words, it's a transformation of consciousness, not just an alteration. We can all have our consciousness altered, we get inspired and uplifted momentarily, but then under different circumstances, you go and watch a movie or something where you can be transformed, oh, sorry, altered in the opposite direction. And then become pretty heedless. So the Buddha's encouragement is just to not settle for knowing a lot about but to become really skillful. I mean, this word often used in, in Buddhism, and partly the word is upaya, or skillful means. You learn, sometimes you can get upaya from your teachers, you can get upaya from the scriptures, sometimes you can get it from yourself. I was talking to somebody today, and I hope they don't mind my using the, the example, but I won't mention any names, but they were, they were telling me about how, how angry they got um, in a certain situation and, um, and instead of taking it out on the other person who they wanted to have a go at they went and stood in front of the mirror and took it out on themselves you know, really told themselves what they wanted to say but actually they got it back and in the process they learned something they actually learnt something about what it means to feel anger you know, to really connect anger taking full responsibility for it not putting it out on the other person Now that's skillful means Uh, The sort of thing that we're encouraged to do, to to find things that actually work for me. The techniques are there to encourage us. Yes, to read the scriptures. Yes, to listen to our teachers. But then to say, how does this apply to this knotted muscle of contracted, deluded ego? Maybe somebody else is disfigured in the direction of greed, but your thing is actually fear. You know, so somebody else who's greed, well, you know, they really do need to be, you know, contemplating death. Death is a great thing to be contemplating if you're obsessed with lust. You know, to really look at dead things. You come across a squash rabbit on the road, really look at it. And, you know, what is, what is death? You know, just a wee while ago this thing was hopping around, having a great time, looking for lunch, you know, wanting to munch on some carrots or something. And now look at it, splat, horrible, ugly smelly thing, not to mention dead human beings, which is the next level of practice. If you're somebody who's really obsessed with lust, then, you know, on some degree all of us are, but you know, to contemplate death is a very good thing. But if you're somebody who's really possessed by anxiety and fear, well then you don't want to hold back from the whole contemplation on death until you really feel that's the right thing to be doing and and maybe what's called for is Uh, using skillful means that give you a sense of confidence and and ease and relaxation and well-being and joy. Uh, Joy is really important. Bhante Silikawesi, who's visiting here, he has a website called Appreciating Joy. And I don't remember if I've looked at this website or not, (laughs) I think I have, but I recommend it anyway, because I know Bhante and I recommend it. Because to develop a consciousness that really knows how to appreciate joy, or what I like to call appreciative awareness. If we have an awareness that is, is so rigid and so limited by the way we've been brought up and the world we've lived in, that we don't know how to take delight in goodness or in beauty when it comes to us, then we're deprived actually. We're deprived it 's one thing to be deprived of food and and deprived of medicine, but in our case, most of us have got more food and medicine than we know what to do with but to to really know how to feed the heart with delight and the Buddha talked about this often how to delight in goodness because when you delight in goodness, that goodness within you is nourished when you delight in generosity, you see somebody else. Being generous, and you take delight in their generosity, the generosity in you is nourished. When you see or hear some wise teachings and you take delight in that wisdom, then your capacity for actual, actual, actualizing wisdom is nourished. And so the capacity to appreciate or take delight in appreciative awareness is profoundly important. Now, you may or may not find what you're looking for in the scriptures that helps you develop your appreciative awareness. Maybe you need to read some good autobiographies. I found that very inspiring, reading Aung San Suu Kyi's autobiography. Well, it's actually a series of letters. It's not really an autobiography at all. It's a series of letters that uh, were put together and presented as a biography. Very worth reading. Uh, Nelson Mandela's autobiography. Uh, the Dalai Lama's autobiography. I found that very helpful. And just to admire these strong, capable individuals triggers something within ourselves. And so finding skillful means not just looking out there for somebody's technique uh, that's going to uh, tell us about what we want to learn, but thanking them for that, appreciating that, taking it in, internalising it, and then applying it, and then getting creative. The techniques and the form of the teachings are like they're like keys. That give it, what we're supposed to do with the key is not put the key up on the shrine and then worship it. You know, People do that often in religion. People get the key and they put it up and then they offer incense to it and flowers to it and bow down to it and sing songs to it and say, I've got the best key in the world, my key is golden and all the rest of it. Well, that's wonderful. But the point of the key, is supposed to put it in the lock of the prison that you're caught up in and turn it around and open the door and move into a larger reality where you find, oh, this is much bigger got much more freedom, much more space. It's also a bit frightening when you enter a larger reality of awareness. When you lose the security of the familiar prison that you've been locked up in for so long. But that's what the teachings, that's what the Buddhist teachings are for, is to help us to enter into that larger reality, increase sense of insecurity, instability, but maintaining our precepts, which give us a sense of confidence, maintaining our mindfulness, and our wise reflection, our wise contemplation. So we look at this situation. How can I deal with this situation? When I'm attached to something and then I suffer, if we've got wise contemplation or true contemplation established, then we won't just turn to our meditation technique and hammer away at it until we suppress the, the hindrance that's arisen and, and then go back, oh, thank goodness, Oh, I'm back into peacefulness again. Now, I used to do that for years. Uh, my first meditation experience, concentrating on the breath, and took me to this place of wonderful delight. You know, just, and just the sensitivity and the joy and the bliss that I experienced in those early months of meditation were just so wonderful. And then, and then as the months went by, and then I became a monk, and then it all fell apart you know, because it really fr- confronted with my stuff. My greed, I can't eat when I want. My aversion, I've got to put up with people I don't like. My delusion. You know, when you're really confronted with these things, well then uh, the task of meditation becomes even more difficult. And so what I would do is I would get totally confused and strung out. And As a young monk, there were situations I'd find I'd have to leave the monastery and go into the, the local town. And, and be my distraction i would be all over the place looking at all these things. And I, I didn't have restraint established. Certainly didn't have any wisdom, and I'd come back to the monastery with a splitting headache, and then I'd go to my cooting quickly, Buddha, 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 kind of get back into some sort of, some sort of stillness and tranquility again. But it didn't really deal with the distraction. Now it's true that some distractions—that's all that's needed—is to go back to your meditation object, and well, that's it, deals with it. The Buddha talked about this. Some distractions are of kind of low-grade distractions. You don't, you're not a big deal. But other ones, you've got to get a, little, a lot more discerning and really turn to them and, in the right way, mindfulness, right feeling, appreciative awareness. What, what is the nature of this condition? What is, what, is, what is making me suffer in this view that I'm holding? You know, some view you're holding just tripped you up suffering again and instead of just coming back to meditation and getting peaceful we can turn to that and, and look at it well, this view I'm holding the view is right you know, it might even be right again to quote Ajahn Chah when he was talking about his suffering over when he recognised that he was actually better than everybody else in the monastery he said everything he did I can sew robes better I can walk meditation better I can sit better, I can chant better you know, I can talk better. Actually, he said, I can't pretend this is not true, but how come I'm suffering over this? Yeah. And then he was talking about the Abhidhamma, where the Abhidhamma talks about how the different types of conceit, that uh, you know, when you consider yourself better when somebody, when you are in fact better, you consider yourself better when you are in fact equal, you consider yourself better when in fact you're worse You consider yourself equal when in fact you're better. You consider yourself equal when in fact you are equal. You consider yourself equal when in fact you're worse. You consider yourself worse when in fact you're better. You consider yourself worse when in fact you're equal. You consider yourself worse when in fact you are worse. Typical Abhidhamma. Does your head in. But these nine types of conceit that the Abhidhamma talks about, and Ajahn Chah was saying, well, you know, how are you supposed to deal with the suffering? He said, you know, you are better. But then he realised by considering that actually it's not the perception of being better, equal or worse. It's the way of relating to that perception. If you're clinging to that perception, you're feeding on the perception, I am better, I am equal, I am worse, then there's same suffering. Without the clinging there can be the conventional perception, I am better, I am equal, I am worse. That's just a conventional perception, it's just that's how it is. So the suffering from wise contemplation shows you there's the suffering. It's not the view. It's the clinging to the view. That's the suffering. And so if we have a feeling for this, this how to use our minds, how to engage our suffering, to contemplate what's going on, we won't just settle for an opinion we have about something because it's guaranteed that our opinion about something will sooner or later be contradicted. At the moment we suffer, we'll start to investigating it. Now people can, people sometimes come and tell me things that they've heard about me. I think, Oh, really? <laughs> Doesn't sound like me. Well, they've heard about me. They've heard it. They maybe even looked up on the internet. Ajimaninda maybe going to go to the monastery, Hana monastery, and so you look up on the internet and say, well, what's the abbot there like? So you type in. Ajmanindo and you can go and you find all sorts of stuff about Ajmanindo, where he was born and when he went forth as a samanera and when he was received into the bhikkhu sangha as a bhikkhu and then he disrobed and was reordained again by this upachaya and this preceptor and he stayed in Thailand this long and then he went to the, and he wrote this and these, <coughs> these talks of his and you can download some mp3 files and and so on and and you can know about Ajmanindo but I'm sure you won't know Ajahn get To meet Ajahn would be a very different experience. Well, somebody was telling me uh, on the telephone, I was talking to somebody in Australia recently, about what they heard of about the Elders' Council um, in England. And what a stuffy bunch of old fuddy-duddies the Elders' Council is. I said, really? And he told me a few of the things he had heard. Well, I don't recognise that. I've been on the Elders' Council for about 15 years now and... I don't feel like a stuffy old fuddy daddy myself, and, and I look at the people who are on it, and you know I don't think any of them are stuffy old fuddy daddies actually, uh, but you can know about something, but not know it. I, I would defy anybody to come to one of the elders council meetings and not you know, really not really be seriously impressed with the, the ability, the strength of this meeting to handle really complex. Difficult questions in a very mature and very sensitive way. And also the very structure of the Elders' Council meeting, how, what it's made up of. And uh, the Elders' Council is made up of the abbots of all of our, the eight monasteries under Agencemata's auspices. That's the four monasteries in England and then Italy and Switzerland and also Abayagiri in California and Wellington in New Zealand. Not that all of those abbots are always present, but if they are in the country at the time of the meeting which happens twice a year, and then they're part of that meeting. But not only that, but also there's... Each monastery can have a second elected representative, so long as the monk or nun, um, because this includes the nuns as well, the senior nuns of the nuns' communities, but also a second elected representative from the community, so it's got a democratic feeling to it. It's not just the power-hungry abbots, which apparently is the reputation that the Elders' Council has, but also it's got the... The sense of a democratic representative. Somebody in this community, like here, um, I go along as the abbot to the meeting, but then it's up to the community here to decide who they want to represent them. Besides me, it could be Ajnabinando or Ajnepunyo, because it's got a—you have to have been in the training for eight or more years before you can represent your community, and they could choose Ajnepunyo or Ajnabinando. It's up to the community. As it happens, Ajin Punyo happens to be the minute-taker for the Elders' Council, so that would be a little bit inconvenient if they chose him. And so they end up having to get Ajin Binando, and they're lucky because he's a very decent guy, and he'll represent them well. But, in other words, the spirit of the Elders' Council is very uh, carefully considered, and the way business is conducted is also very sensitive, very respectful. And yet, what uh, this uh, person in Australia and in Sydney was telling me about was, This grew. I just didn't recognise it at all. And so, when in our daily life we find that we're holding on to views or opinions about a situation, about dhamma, about meditation, about our parents, about our co-workers, about ourselves, views we have about ourselves, is that really who I am? Yeah. Like. I'm actually damaged goods, you know. Other people can do it, you know. That monk can do it. That nun can do it. Or maybe that person could do it, but not me, because you know I'm damaged goods. I've failed so many times in my life, and I know it because I'm me, and I know I failed. I've tried and tried and tried. I know it, and you can't kid me. You can't tell me otherwise. I know I failed. Is that is that really who you are? That view, I. Am somebody who fails all the time. Well, you have the memory of somebody who's failed in the past, but that's not the truth of who we are. That's only a view about who we are. That's an impression about who we are. It's actually just like a recipe book. It's an impression about how to prepare food. But you don't eat the recipe book. Likewise, we're not supposed to believe in the thoughts and impressions we have in our minds about ourselves and about reality. We need to develop mindfulness and discernment and eventually, hopefully, we'll reach wisdom so we can see the actuality of ourselves and the world that we live in. So I hope this evening these uh, comments on the Dhammapada verse 282 will be an encouragement and some possible degree of inspiration for you to contemplate deeper and find your own understanding. Thank you very much for your attention and I am no